Hi, welcome to Salt and Hash, the show where we talk about security that matters. No FUD, no hype, just a little bit snark. I'm Famida Rashid, senior writer of CSL Online, and with me is my colleague Steve Reagan. Today we're going to talk about DerbyCon, incident response, and the future of passwords. And we're back. Hey, Steve, how's it going? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. So I know you just came back from DerbyCon. I'm hoping you're well rested. And I want no. you to tell us. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. <clears throat> but tell us what you heard, what you saw. You know, tell me about DerbyCon. I've never been, actually. Uh, well, let me give you a little background. So DerbyCon is a um, kind of smallish, but yet a, a rather busy conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I think there was just over like 2,200, 2,300 people there this year. I mean, it was, it was pretty packed. It's at the downtown uh, Hyatt. And three tracks running all weekend long, um, kind of a late start each day. Bourbon is the... Very uh, important. Yeah, just free pouring. Um, <clears throat> so what I did this weekend, or this week, rather, while I was down there, was I talked to a lot of different people about the, the Equifax breach, um, I talked to a guy about surviving ransomware, which is a pretty big topic for us here at uh, CSO. And I, I just had a lot of really productive conversations with a lot of different hacker types, um, from freelancers to established workers. And uh, it, it did a mix of researchers. It did a mix it, of professionals. Like who who goes to DerbyCon? Uh, so we've got you got a little bit of everybody down there. It, you've got the researchers, like pure researchers. You got the academic types. You've got the the red teamers for you know X Y Z company, which I'm not going to name any of those companies because some of those people aren't allowed to talk to the press. But yet, hi, how are you? Um, <clears throat> it, it's it's a good mix, actually. Um, what I really like about DerbyCon is is meeting all of the first-time attendees. So these are the, the ones who can't really go to like the big conferences out in Vegas or like the RSAs in California, things like that. But local regional conferences are certainly obtainable to them. So they go to things like DerbyCon and like you know B-Sites, Knoxville, things like this. Right. And uh, it, it it's it's really cool to see their their opinion and their take on things. So you know that that's that's always fun for me. It's very, very um, enlightening. I think would be a good word for it. <clears throat> so let's see. Um, I talked with Matthew Perry. The actor? You actually met the actor? You know, that's actually the joke he uses in his slide. It's hysterical. <laughs> so he is a administrator for a small law firm, and mm -hmm. he survived two different ransomware attacks. And his story in particular resonated with me. Um, and that is because last November, when I was in the studio, we did this thing to where uh, we, we, IT gave me laptops and I destroyed them. And what IT, we did was. IT, very trusting. Yeah. <laughs> and they haven't given me one cent, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe they learned a lesson. The, uh, the, the funny thing is so, what I did was I infected the first laptop with Lockie, and then I used the second laptop that I also infected with Lockie because why not both? And. I recovered from ransomware on the second one, and we did a, an entire video. That's earlier before we started recording when I told you, you know, sometimes that chair can hurt your back sitting at that desk. <laughs> I sat at that desk for seven hours recovering wow. from Lockheed. 
That's why I know the pain of that chair. And so when I talk to Matthew, he, he has this, this – uh, maybe it's like a southern gentleman's charm or something. But the way he, he, he told his story to me, it just, just narrated it. It was, it was flawless. It kept me enthralled. So he survived two different ransomware attacks, and the way he did so was backups. That's it. He has redundant backups. He tests them on a regular basis, and he was able to recover like that. So basically, okay, it's locked. You know what? Get rid of it. I'm just going to start off fresh because I have backups. Yes. You know, it's exactly IT at it. its basics, right? Yes, it is. And that's, that's, that was the point of his talk. <clears throat> he was able to survive ransomware because he did the basics, and he followed through on the basics. And the thing was, he, he just kept it really simple. You know, he's got a, his backups are incremental. He checks them every day when he comes in. And because he works in a law firm, people are constantly needing to recover documents from backups because, you know, they use forms. Oh. It's a document processing shop. So you're going to be like, oops, I saved the wrong file. Hey, Mac, can you restore that for me? Absolutely. Tick, tick. There you go. And it, it allows him to, to you know, just stay up on things. But even if that doesn't happen, he has a, a system in place to where what he does is he just picks random files, restores them, and then asks the user, hey, is that legit? And they tell him right then and there. So he has that, that backup process in place, and it's, it's multiple tiers here. He's got on-site backups. He's got backups of those backups. He's got off-site backups. I mean, it, it's a, a whole system he runs through. So he's not even and, just relying on, like, cloud, like, okay, I'm going to back up to the cloud. Like, it's multiple backups of backups. Funny story about the cloud. He doesn't use the cloud at all because it's a law firm. And they don't want to use the cloud because that means they would be putting their client's stuff in somebody else's system they don't have control over. So that type of risk was deemed unacceptable, and therefore they do not use cloud at all. Makes sense if you think about it, actually. Yeah, now that, so, I'm, now that you said I'm sitting here, I'm saying, duh, of course that's not going to happen. But Ah, but... There were two people in the talk that asked Matthew, why aren't you using cloud as if it was some magical mystery cure? And it, and it, the, the look <clears throat> when it, when it, when, when they asked that, you know, he had that look like, really, <laughs> you know, kind of like the, the point of the talk was doing the basics. And when you, you try to rely on silver bullets, you're failing at the basics. Right. The cloud is great in some cases, but not all. Right. And just assuming that the cloud's going to magically solve your backup problem, well, that, that, that seems kind of counterproductive. Mm -hmm. In fact, the reason he has so many tears is because the second ransomware attack he had to deal with, it didn't start on the user system. It actually started on his NAS. Oh. It literally targeted his backups first. And so that's when he realized, you know, okay, I need to have a non-attached backup. Right. And so that's what he implemented. And the funny thing is, because he keeps backups off-site, even when it went after the NAS, he was still fine. Mm -hmm. But there was a gap in his program. And up until that point, he didn't realize it because that's just the nature of how you do things in IT. I mean, you're going to do everything the best you can at first, but there are going to be gaps. The trick is to understand when you know the when, when these gaps present themselves, understand what they are, and then get them fixed. So it's that not, the next time you're actually prepared, not have that gap. Exactly. It's not neck breaking, but at the same time, it, it gets really frustrating when I, I talk to consultants and they're like, you know, I tell these people what to do and they ignore me. And 
that's that's just I don't know. It, it's very it's it's mind blowing at times that you know the basics are just often left ignored. I mean, one of the slides in Matthew's talk was kiss, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> and the 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 thing was when he did when he when he pointed out his backup thing, you just see like lights go on in the room. Like there were heads nodding and there were, there were, and the best part was this was a stable talk. So it was only 30 minutes long in 30 minutes. I think at least half that room got a great education and backups and it made sense to them. That's why I like to go in DerbyCon. It's really easy to share information without all the, the marketing hype or spin behind it. It's just peers talking to peers. And I think that's important when you're actually learning from someone who is in the trenches doing stuff, not someone yep. who is a little bit removed, a business executive. It's like the actual mm-hmm. folks. So you mentioned that you had a couple conversations about Equifax while you were yep. at DerbyCon. Of course, we're all talking about Equifax. What was that specific conversation? So I was trying to figure out the value of the data. Uh, let's assume. You mean it's not $10 a record? No, far from it. <laughs> In fact, let's assume somebody somewhere has all 143 million records. Everything that, that Equifax claim was breached. I hope they have backups. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe I don't want them to have backups. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to dogpile on Equifax. It's like, it's like, that's the joke you don't take because it's just too easy at this point. But... If, if I had, we'll just use me as an example. Let's say I, I've got 143 million records. What do you think they're worth? What, per record, what do you think the cost is? Well, I mean, the most common figure you hear is between a dollar to $2 record. So that's right? what I'm going to go with. Makes sense, except it's not. It's about 40 cents a record for Foles. And Foles contains your name, your address, social security number, your birthday, phone numbers, and maybe a, a smattering of, of, of additional detail. I'm not and sure how depending... I feel about being that cheap. It's kind of insulting, <laughs> but when you consider the economics and the fact that even though a criminal market is you know, criminal, it's still a market. Yeah. So there is supply and demand for them. And when records get flooded and, and you just flood the market with all this data, right. the price drops exponentially. Um, I, I, I mean, give you an example I saw. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Um, I saw an ad where this um, Russian guy was selling 340,000 foals. Okay? okay. And he was selling them for $300. That's it? Yes. Wow. So what's that for a record? 34 cents. There you go. And that just, I, I mean, there you go. I mean, the look on your face. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you're wearing the same look I did, you know? I mean, on the low end, the Equifax records would be worth about $57.2 million. On the up end, they're going to be worth about 143. But the problem with those guesstimates is the fact that nobody's selling individual records. In fact, right. if you just want like 10 fulls, you're probably going to get those from free for free from a seller who's just going to dump things off on you. Right. And if you're buying them, you're buying them in bulk. So the other half of the research I was doing after I figured out, you know, where the, the cost center was on the Equifax stuff was what you can do with that. See, a lot of the times what you hear doesn't really jive up with the reality of a criminal market. So can I take these fools and try to commit credit card fraud? Absolutely. What are my odds of success? Kind of hard because all the fraud stuff at the bank these days makes credit fraud just 
well, actually, damn near impossible in some I mean, cases. I'm actually really happy to see how on top of things banks are. I mean, they call, they follow up. So yep. the fraud departments are definitely doing a great job with that. But it still happens, and it's still a risk. So that's you know that's one type of, of way this data can be abused. Uh, lately, the common trend is to actually take these fulls and then try to translate them into tax equivalencies so that I can file tax returns and other things. Um, sometimes these fulls are used for human trafficking. Um, you'll see them given to fake passports to bring people in and out of a given country or port. Uh, sometimes you'll see them just sold to bypass immigration and things like that. There's a number of different ways this data can be used. I'm still trying to figure out the most common ones, and that'll actually be part of a story I'm going to be running later in the future. <laughs> hey, I'm not sure how I feel about being that cheap, but then it actually makes sense from an economic standpoint. But... It's, it's kind of insulting. <laughs> it really is. Like, I have, I'm worth more than a dollar, yeah. damn it. Well, because a lot of it not. is, <laughs> because it's so cheap, it actually makes it more likely for things to be dumb, things to be distributed more. If it was expensive, you kind of think, oh, hey, maybe criminals won't want to pay for it. But that's not yep. the case. So it actually yep. makes the risk even higher. So since we are talking about Equifax, we're not going to quite dump on them. But I do want to move on to the next topic about incident response. I mean... Sure. We talk about how you have to recover, how you detect, how you communicate. And I think it's pretty established that Equifax did an exceptionally bad job. Now, I mean, I don't know if you saw the interim CEO posted an apology to Americans in the Wall Street Journal. And his basic thing was, yeah, we should have had a better call center staff. We should have had um, what was it, a better website, and I feel like he's missing the point. So let's talk a little bit about that. What is incident response that we should have seen? I would have liked to have seen quicker reactions. I mean, if you look at the timeline <laughs> of what was known and when, I don't understand why it took so long to get to where they are now. And I will say the way they handled disclosure originally was a big problem for me. Um, Wasn't there yeah, something about how the fact that they registered the domain could have been... susceptible a to phishing, exactly. It's a dumpster fire. <laughs> and I, I don't understand... So I recognize crisis PR when I see it. Right. You know, this whole, dear America, we're so sorry in the <laughs> Wall Street Journal, pure, pure play crisis PR. That's exactly what that is. It's mm -hmm. trying to get get past the situation at hand and move forward. I understand that. What I don't understand is, you know, all of this, this, these gaps between detection and what appears to be recovery and stuff like that. And so, I mean, on one hand, I want to just like, you know, slam them and say, how could you? Why is it taking so long and things like this? On the other hand, I'm not in their shoes. So I don't know if I should judge because what if there was something like, horribly wrong on the inside that just none of us know about. So like there was like a, a really big process problem or something like that right. and something slowed them down. I mean, then it would be unfair, not to the executives, not to the executives, but unfair to the actual trench workers. Exactly. Those who I mean, were, they were working hard. Yeah. Think. Well, see, another thing we don't know is, you know, we're, we're talking about web vulnerabilities and things like this and all, all these extras. Well, why weren't they patched and recognized ahead of time, detected ahead of time? And the thing was, what if they were? 
What if they were and there was a policy problem in place in the, inside that company that prevented the trench workers from actually going to do their jobs and making sure this stuff's done? Exactly. And we don't know. And I think that's a problem. I think I would very much like to have answers to those questions. You know, I want to know more than what they're they're just leaking out to save face with the investors. I want to know what lessons we have here because – Equifax serves as a perfect example that it will, not it can, it will happen to you. They are a massive enterprise with scale. And they got popped like any other mom-and-pop brick-and-mortar shop. I mean, they got just just completely destroyed. You know, their most valuable asset taken from them. And, I mean, it's not even a situation where... They could say that, oh, this was a very sophisticated something they couldn't have foreseen. You know, nope. we're outside we're like, this is an easy, basic t- problem. This, but yeah, we don't, this like you said, we don't the, know what happened the, inside. Yeah, it goes right back to what we were just talking about. It's, it's about the basics. And the thing is, when the basics can't be done, like when you can't patch a server or something immediately, that's when you have compensating controls. Well, where were they? What were they? Exactly. Equifax won't say. So then... What's your excuse? Why didn't you do this? I mean, security is never as simple as patch and forget. And right. I'll never advocate that, you know, downloading a patch would have solved this problem. It absolutely would not. There's testing, absolutely there is not. verification, there mm-hmm. is policy. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than just, okay, hit update. Yep. I think I think the easiest way to, to branch out on this, this, this story and to close it off was when I got back from Derby County, I was reading the news, and I saw that the CEO was resigning. Yeah. And the CEO is walking away with like $8.3 million in a pension or something, or like $18 million in a pension. Oh, because so, something... it's a retirement as opposed to yeah, firing? Yeah, it, exactly. So, you know, you, you got this thing. And I, I couldn't help but notice that that was like $0.13 cents per record. But um, bum. <laughs> Think about it. Take his pension. Like about the thirteen C- cents a record. We are worth even less to the CEO than we were to the criminals. I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I was damn sure thinking it though. You know, there goes uh, the entire like good feeling I had about myself and my self worth here today. <laughs> at this point, I, I just. I think what I'll do is just walk around and put all my like all the basic folds on a business card and just hand it out to people. <laughs> at least it that way, you know. I mean, it'll it'll just be out there, and I don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. So one thing I wanted to actually talk about, especially what you were saying about why it took so long, and I'm gonna try to maybe not defend Equifax, but kind of think about it from the people in the trenches. I mean, a lot of time investigations take a while. And I know with almost every data breach, it's why did it take so long? Why didn't you guys tell us as soon as you found out? And I'm actually on the side of you don't want to notify immediately. You actually want that time to investigate. Yeah, that's why I want to know what was going on inside. If there was a cause for this delay <clears throat> and it was just a lack of resources during IR, the, the, the overall investigation, then, you know, my follow-up question is, why didn't you have those resources? Well, yeah. <laughs> You're a billion-dollar company, a multi-hundred billion dollar. Why? Didn't Mandiant get called in, like, weeks after the initial discovery? It wasn't yeah, immediate. I think so. There yeah, was I a think significant so. time gap. 
I don't know the full timeline on that. No, I can't. I can't find anybody to confirm anything that's swirling in like the <laughs> the infosec rumor mill or yeah. you know being passively reported in the news. When I find confirmation, I'll, I'll write about it. But yeah. until then, is it's all still up in the air. And I mean, if they waited weeks to bring in an outside contractor to help with IR, why? What's the delay? Exactly. What did your team need before they can come come in? Right. Why were we holding on this? And again, if it's a lack of resources, that's a little scary when ask, you have such a big know? company. Yeah, yeah, why is there a lack of resources? And a lot of times, and it's sad to say this, but a lot of times, security is not the biggest piece of the IT pie when yeah. it comes to budgets. You know, IT still gets a, a decent chunk, but not as much as some of the other departments. Yeah. But at the same time, security is often just a sliver within IT's budget. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's just the way it is. And then, again, you know, when your most critical asset is walking out the door, <laughs> <laughs> where's your budget now? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that the next person who goes in there and says, hi, I need a bigger security budget, they're most likely going to get whatever they ask for. Which is total crap. Why do you get budget after something horrible happens? What is what is the reason behind that? That that frustrates me so much because it's absolutely true. If you want budgeting for your security program, get hacked. That's the easiest way to that's that's the way to make things happen, it seems. And that's just it's it's backwards. It, it so makes that's no not sense actual advice. We're not advocating being hacked, no matter what Steve just said. So I don't want you to get hacked, but if you do, call me. Let me know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> so God. I think both of us are a little depressed now talking about the present and what's been happening. Let's try to hey, cheer ourselves up a little bit. Did I tell bit. you about my friend Trevor from uh, oh, DerbyCon? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We won't talk about Trevor. Tre Trevor, just search CSO online for Trevor. You'll understand. Trevor and DerbyCon, you'll get it. But the story makes her cringe, so I'm not going to talk about it. Thank you. <laughs> Although that's, sorry, a very, just... that's a very positive note to move on. But, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, while I think while you're at DerbyCon, I mean, everyone's talking about the iPhone and facial ID, and now we're talking about facial recognition. So it's like, hey. It looks like we're in the world of biometric. And frankly, I'm not wild about it. I'm not wild about suddenly my face or my finger being the primary authentication. I don't know if you agree with me. I think I'm just jaded at this point because I don't care. <laughs> what do you mean you don't care? I can hear my dogs barking. They're yeah, in the other I, room. I think so. your dog disagrees with you too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's the matter, baby? His <laughs> daddy got a bad opinion. <laughs> But no, it, it's it's funny because when when I, I think about like all of the the stuff with the the facial ID, the fingerprinting, and stuff like this, I've literally had my data compromised in so many different breaches now that I just do you need my face? Fine, here, <laughs> snap a selfie, have it. I'm okay with it now because I'm just over it. it maybe it's it's breach fatigue, but at the same time, I do realize that. There is a risk in in privacy. Um, I, I also I don't fully understand the mechanics behind some of these these systems that are coming out. Like I think it was the Samsung phone had where like if I just held up a nice little photo of you, it would then unlock it, the device. Yeah, it, yeah. it gets fooled by photos. The Apple yeah, one it, supposedly doesn't, but the Samsung one can be fooled. 
So the Apple one, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, it reads like pivot points in your face. You know, yeah, like it's a like little several points, thing. and then it's also using um, some kind of a machine learning algorithm so that you know, depending on time of day, it knows how the shadows reflect, and it just uses all these things. So that it's not a static knowledge; it's an evolving knowledge of what your face looks like. So what happens if I make a 3D printed mask and hold it at distance for forced perspective, and then put it in front of your phone? Supposedly, it's not going to succeed because of the way your skin absorbs light. But again, you know, this is what Apple is just saying. None of us have seen it in place. I'm yeah, actually yeah. curious what happens when I put makeup on. Is that going to change? Because I know that there are times when I put makeup on and then when I don't, I look totally different. You know what? Go figure. It's probably because I don't wear makeup. I never <laughs> actually considered that. But that's a good point. What does happen? It, not just makeup, but what if you've had surgery? Right. What if you've had, you know, some sort of... Um, skin condition like a rash or something like that and you've got to wear all the the cream and medicine on your face what happens yeah you know are you absorbing light differently at that point i mean how does that impact what's going on now from i would a assume design standpoint, tests, i wonder how you test for that like hey employees we no need people idea. who yeah. have like scars like how do you even test that in product design so i have no idea and the, the more i think about it the more baffling it gets to me because you know somebody somewhere has had to test it that's someone I'd like to interview. Tell me about your job. Um, another thing that, that really gets me about you know the, the way this stuff is playing out is I've heard a lot of talk about you know like there's risk to protesters and things like this, and, and right. I, I absolutely agree there are. But at the same time, if you're protesting something you know like a government or something, why are you using an iPhone? Why are you walking around with a well, phone? Why shouldn't you be doing an iPhone? I thought the entire phone is better no, than no, Android. iPhones are secure. If you're going, to, if you need a phone, yes, get get the iPhone. But I'm just thinking, if you're if you're doing some stuff that's inherently risky to your life because you're you know you're doing stuff like this, that 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 phone's the least of your concerns. <laughs> the, the face is the least of your concerns right now. Especially the only when half the places, like, all those cameras, you're already being mm -hmm. photographed at those places anyway. Well, see. The thing that, that really bugs me about that is the fact that now, you know, to whereas the police would have to force you to, to put your fingerprint on the phone or force you to enter a password, I, if, if I'm, I'm following this correctly, and I could be completely wrong here, all they got to do is hold that phone up to your face. I don't like that at all. No. I, I just, that just, that's where I see like the risk of protesters and other things because, you know, now if you get rounded up and you're, you're just being held there and the cop holds the phone up to your face, what, what goes on? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not that, a lawyer, but based on past precedent, it really does seem like holding the phone up to your face is not going to be protected. Like, you can't be like, no, you can't use my I face. Think, I think it might be eventually, but you're like me you know, or like you. I'm not a lawyer either, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. I just don't like the way that feels. Yeah. You know, security is very much a, a, a feeling at times. And when it comes to this, the feeling for me is, uh, no, I don't I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. But so, we'll have to play it out. We'll play it out. You know, once the new phones come on, more people start using it, testing it. I think we're going to get a better feel for whether or not this is the direction we want the world moving to. Might as well try it. So, yeah. so all right. Well, thanks for tuning in. Uh, on our next show, we're going to be talking about cool tools. We're going to be talking about fishing and a couple other things. So remember, kids, the salted insulted hash is the, what you know. <laughs>